this isn't her. And so um, we just um, continue to pray for each and every one. Pray for each other. That God will work in our hearts and lives as well. <clears throat> been trying to read our doctrinal statement to you, and I think I'm at number eight. It says, we believe that Satan is a person and that hell is a place of eternal consequence consequent eternal consciousness punishment of all unsaved that's not one of the more pleasant parts of our doctrinal statement but it's a part that is uh, so true that we have to understand that uh, there is a heaven to gain and you've heard it before there's a hell to shun and we want to be sure that we are involved in doing that as far as believers by the blood of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us I do think the outline is on the screen for you this morning. We've got the joy of contentment, so uh, Pastor Donald must have done this by remote. He's pretty talented in all this kind of stuff, so he's done it by the remote. And uh, this morning we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, and um, the idea is the joy of contentment. Isn't contentment a great word? Uh, whenever I think about being content, I'm always thinking about how many folks are not content today. And the other part about contentment is you don't have it forever, it seems as if. It can sort of come and go. I'm sure you've experienced that in your life, where uh, uh, you can be doing well and being content for a period of time, and then uh, you seem to lose it. Then you have to sort of struggle to get it back again because of the issues that are going on. I have a definition. Content is this, a feeling, or re a feeling of requirement to a degree that one is not disturbed by a desire for something more or different. That's a pretty good definition. A feeling of requirement to the degree that one is not dis disturbed by a desire for something more or something different. The best illustration that I can think about contentment is uh, going back to when our, young, our children were young and they used to listen to Patch the Pirate. I'm sure you all who know exactly who Patch the Pirate is. And by the way, did you know that uh, Ron Hamilton does have dementia and um, he is struggling right now. His wife is caring for that and his children, and, uh, <clears throat> but he is uh, getting worse and worse with that. Uh, I guess it's Alzheimer's or whatever it is, part of dementia. And, uh, and they're, they're compensating. But, you know, you all know what Patch the Pirate is. There's one... There's one that they used to listen to that reminds me of this topic this morning, probably more than any other. It's the one where, I think I've mentioned to you before, there's a little boy, and I, I can't do it near as well as Patch can, of course, you know how that is. There's this little boy <clears throat> who, um, he gets bored with things pretty easy. And so every time uh, this person comes to him and he says, every time, you know, you get bored and you want to move the time up, you just take the hands of the clock and... You just you know, move them through, and that'll take care of that time. You've heard this one before, you know. You just kind of, if it's 8 o'clock and you want it to be 10 o'clock, just take the little clock here and just sort of move it to 10 o'clock, and it'll be 10 o'clock. So you can imagine what a little boy's doing in school the first day. It's 8 o'clock in the morning, and he wants school to be out, so he moves the thing to 3 o'clock. It's 3 o'clock. Boy, this is great. I mean, it's fantastic. Just all you got to do is just move the hands and everything you really don't like, you just sort of get rid of. And so he kept doing this. And then, of course, it goes on and on. Uh, the end of the story is he wakes up an old man one day and he wonders where time has gone. Isn't that sort of the way it works for us? You know, you, you sit there and you think about, well, I wish this were not true. I wish I could 
figure this out or do something else. And, and we lose our contentment. Now, the contentment that he's talking about here deals much with money. There's no doubt about that, and we'll see that as we go. But contentment is far greater than just money that we have or resources that we seem to avail ourselves of. And um, contentment is, i got another definition for you. This is a little more biblical definition. Contentment is complete God-sufficiency. Isn't that interesting? Contentment is complete God-sufficiency. Carry, it carries the secret of happiness. What carries the secret of happiness is our relationship to our Lord. And I'm speaking now basically of spiritual contentment, right? Because we are ones who need to be content in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. We spent a long time yesterday dealing with these topics with the men. And um, quite interesting conversation. And we were looking at the idea of being content, but then he says in Matthew chapter 6, the one verse that you have for the devotion says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And of course, now you've got to discuss how do you seek and be content. You see the problem? If you are content, you're not seeking anything, are you? But if you're seeking, then there seems to be something else you need to do. So, uh, interesting when you think about the differences that's going on here in the area of contentment. Epicurus had this definition when he had the secret for, for happiness. He says, if you want to know how to be happy, he says, add not to a man's possession, but take away from his desires. That's a pretty good way of being happy, isn't it? Don't give them more. Simply take away what they want. It's what we want that usually gets us into problems and difficulties. And, of course, that goes to motivation. Now, Christians in the Bible, nowhere does it plead for poverty. Uh, and I, I'm not pleading for poverty this morning. I don't think you are either. Uh, nowhere can I find Scripture talking about poverty being the best situation in life. Now, of course, Jesus Christ didn't have a place to lay his head, so he was the great example. But I don't find him telling everybody <clears throat> that they should be in poverty. No, most of the people in the Bible that basically were individuals of influence were people of means, right? You can make your list with Abraham and Solomon, and David, <clears throat> those individuals, Job. You know, I mean, the list is there. And so the Bible doesn't really plead for poverty. There, there's no special virtue in being poor. Isn't that a good thing to know? It may cause us to seek him more, and that's not always a given either. Or having a constant struggle to make our ends meet. The one statement that always comes back to me when I start talking and studying this area of money in the Bible is, and it's so important, it's not what you make, it's what you spend. You know, and if you really grab a hold of that, you've got it, don't you? Because <clears throat> it's our spending <clears throat> that gets us into problems. And many times that happens. But the Bible does plead for two things. Let me give them to you. And on the screen, two things the Bible pleads for that will make us content in this life. First one is this, and it's a negative. It's, it is never in the power of things to bring happiness. Things and material will never bring you happiness. It's impossible to do so. <clears throat> it's always going to be something else. Because our Happiness does not lie in things or our joy. It lies in God would be the issue that is involved in this area. And the second one is, you know, 
It pleads for concentration upon things that are permanent, not temporal. The Bible always pleads or talks about, as far as happiness is concerned, things that are eternal and not things that are temporary. We've looked at the devotions this week, and I trust I didn't get one day in, but the other days we did. And it was out of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Boy, what a passage talking about the lilies of the field and how they were arrayed and how, what you need from the, that passage. But this is really what's going on. He says there, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where your heart is. We looked at three verses yesterday. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is also. Those are all classic verses out of the Sermon on the Mount that he talks about. But we as individuals, as believers, I'm going to put it in this category this morning, as believers, we need to be content, and we need to understand what contentment is and how Paul here is talking to Timothy at the church at Ephesus. He is instructing him how to help this church develop, and he is talking about them being content, but also notice he's used the word godliness three times. In verse 3, he's used the word godliness, which is according to godliness. Verse 5, he says, supposing that gain is godliness, and now again in verse 6, we have but godliness. So you have to understand that his theme here at least three times in these number of verses, at least four verses or five verses, is godliness. And so godliness with contentment is great gain. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, help us to be encouraged by your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Paul is helping Timothy to understand the situation that's going on around him. There's some problems in the church. We've been looking at these. Now he is moving towards the end, and he still has just dealt with false teachers. And really, this section is hard on the heels of false teachers. And remember, what they are doing is, you know, they are uh, trying to use the gospel, or at least Christianity, we should say, for gain. Verse 5, supposing that gain is godliness from such turn away. And I said last week, there's big money in, Christian, in Christianity today. I mean, uh, boy, some of these artists and, and, and some of these preachers and some of these individuals, if you can get in the right circuit, there is big money in Christian, in Christian things today. And so he is here telling us that that's not what's going to give us any kind of contentment. No, we must be content with something completely different than just gain in our own lives. And so this morning, I want you, just two things I have for you. First of all, I want you to look at verses 6 through 8 at the fact that godliness is gain. Then we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. There's a real shift because the word but introduces verse 9. There's going to be a real shift because it's going to say that greed is losing. So godliness is gain. I've got three things for you. First of all, in this area of understanding that godliness is gain in verses 6 through 8. There's a formula. That would be the first part. Verse 6 gives to us a formula that we can develop in our lives that will be the result, that will result in us having godliness, but doing so with contentment. And that's the formula. But, and of course, in contrast to verse 5, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If A equals B, then you get the sum, right? That's sort of a mathematical formula that's going on here in this section. Success in life must be spiritual. For a believer, it has to always be spiritual. What we're doing in this world has to have eternal 
implications involved with it. And it must be not only <clears throat> spiritual, but we can also combine it by being inward, intrinsic, something that's found within us. Because satisfaction and contentment is really not going to be found with the external or the material. Because <clears throat> there's always something more. And really, our economy would fall apart, wouldn't it, if there was not something more to buy. I mean, how many times have you listened to somebody giving you an economics report and <clears throat> they base that on how many goods are being bought, how much money is being spent, how much individuals have been looked upon as a way to separate them from their resources so they can <clears throat> somehow make out for the best. So, you know, if we live the life of contentment as America, our economy would flop in no time flat. And so <clears throat> this inward satisfaction that he's talking about with godliness is not affected by outward circumstances. If you ever go through the book of Philippians, I don't know if we'll get a chance to do that again or not, but Philippians has this whole idea of, of joy. In one of the chapters, I can't remember which one, I think it's number three, talks about the fact that you know, joy is not involved with outward circumstances or situations that you go through. Our joy is something that we have from God. And the same thing is found here. You know, our joy comes from the fact that God is the one who gives us that satisfaction. I'm using joy and satisfaction almost parallel here. But it's true. And we as believers, we have to learn to be content in really whatever financial circumstance we find ourselves in. I'll get that word out. Financial circumstance we find ourselves in because I've said this to you before. How much a person has really has nothing to do with how much they want. Individuals who want have nothing to do with the resources they have. It's that desire within themselves. And so godliness here with contentment is great gain. It's more than money, isn't it? It can be marriage. It can be a job. It can be a life desire. But those all must have their relationship to God and what God is doing in your life. True godliness, is what he states here, will produce contentment. And so if we're not content, then godliness also will go. But this doesn't mean that <coughs> we as individuals are satisfied with our spiritual growth. This is where the tension arises, right? Because I know in my life, and you know in your life that there's always more progress to be made. We understand that we are not going to reach perfection in this lifetime. That would be one of our doctrines that we'll look at here. We're not going to reach perfection in this lifetime. Only when we get to heaven are we going to reach that state where we no longer are bothered by sin. So there has to be a connection between us seeking Jesus Christ on a daily basis and our contentment. And so they're wrapped together. As we are seeking after Christ, we are finding our contentment in Him and what He wants for us to do. And if we lose that contentment with Him, there's probably a spiritual problem going on in our life because of that. So the formula is well taken. 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now he gives to us a reality in verse 7. And this reality is this. He says, For we brought nothing into this world. It is certain we shall carry nothing out. Picture of life, isn't it? Whenever you were born, you were born with nothing. I mean, that's just the way you come into this world. And everybody here understands that. And when we leave this world, we're not going to take anything out from this world. It's only that time in the middle that makes the difference. That's when you go to a cemetery. That's basically what you see, right? Somebody was born in 1955. That's a good date. And then there's a line, and then they die in 2021. That's not a good date, but... You know, the idea is it's right in between there. That's life. One's the beginning, then one's the end. And the time in the middle is your life. And every tombstone that I've ever noticed, I don't think I've ever seen a tombstone, doesn't have that formula on there, do you? They've got when a person was born. In our cemetery here, they've even got how many days some people lived and how many months. And it goes right down to the very, you know, essence of life. But, you know, there's a beginning point and there's an end point. And then there's this place in the middle. And he's talking about that in this section. He says, we brought nothing into this world. When you were born, all you received was just who you are. But you had everything you needed. That's why abortion is such a terrible sin, is because everything that's needed is there. But then whenever we leave this life, we're not going to carry anything with us. And you've all heard the old story about the Hirsch with the U-Haul. I heard somebody say that somebody even tried it one time. There's a picture of it someplace going around where the Hirsch had the U-Haul, you know, hauling behind him. You know, it really doesn't make any difference, does it? I mean, when it's over, it's over. And we know that we're not going to take anything out of this world. It's, It's finished. It's complete. It's total. And Really, have you ever heard, and I've mentioned this before, have you ever heard of anybody being sorry for serving the Lord during their life? I really haven't. And I wished I hadn't served God too much, as much. No, because that's something that we take with us in this world. Now, I've heard people say, I wished I hadn't done maybe something else or used more time for this. I'm not serving God. And the person who is going to be content must allow God to have first place in their life, in every area. So that's the reality. And, you know, it's every time you're at a, at a funeral, I mean, the reality is there. And it's very, very much before everybody's eyes that this is the way life exists. But the third part that I want you to notice about this is the essentials is found in verse 8. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be, and here's our word again, content. Food and raiment. This is the line in the middle. And the line says that we need to be, these are the essentials of life. Now, Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6, he adds food and water and raiment know if there's really a big difference in the reason why he would state that. 
But his point is that, you know, this is the bare essentials. This is what you actually need. Now, the Matthew 6 passage talks about the fact that when we have these, you know, God gives them to us, and we should be satisfied with these issues. And so, you know, really, what do you need in life? Well, you need food, and you need clothes. I don't even find shelter. I would hate to do without it, wouldn't you? <laughs> but I don't find shelter in the passage. I simply find here food and clothing would be the two essentials that Paul is saying you basically need in this life. And if you have that, then you have all that you need. This is reducing life to its smallest common denominator. I didn't do too well in math, but I do remember doing that. You know, you're getting it down to the smallest common denominator. And that would be food and clothing. I would like to add lodging in there too, wouldn't you? Maybe I'd like to add a few other things in there. I don't know. But that's what he states in this passage that we need. And Paul here does not condemn having possessions. No, he's not really into that. But he says, as long as God provides them these possessions, he does condemn self-indulgence because when you think about it, this is what you need. You know, we need a car. Well, you can walk, but in our society, you probably need a car. But let me just not mention this to the men yesterday. You know, really, what a car should do is get you from point A to point B. Everybody, that's pretty well what it should do, right? Do you need a radio? Do you need a GPS? Unless you're very challenged with those type of things. Maybe you do. I don't know. Uh, but do you need, you know, you start at, you add all these things onto it. We're going to talk about the house. You know, a house, basically, you, you don't need a lot in a house, but what do we do? We just keep adding more and more to it. And the problem comes with lack of contentment, not with those issues, but it's why do I have what I have? Is it so that I can get from point A to point B, or is it so that I can impress the people around me of how I get from point A? to point B. That's the difference. And if we are looking at our contentment as a way in which people are going to look upon us and say, well, you know, boy, that person, they've really got it made in this life. We're never going to find contentment. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go out in the parking lot and tear your radio out. <clears throat> radio. Well, you see how old I am. Whatever it is you got anymore in your car, I mean, there are all kinds of things you've got to make noises. No, that's not the point. The point is, <clears throat> we got to look and say, where is my contentment? Where, where is it found? Is it found in the abundance of the things that I have? Because really, when you boil life down to its bare essentials, this is what we actually need. We need food, and we need raiment. And if we allow ourselves to follow the dictates of this world, we will lose that satisfaction that comes there, and then we will lose our understanding of godliness. I was studying this, and I come across an individual who made these four observations. Really, there's four priorities that God says we should have in our life. I don't have them on the screen. I'm going to give them for you. I'm going to give them to you. They're very short. And he says, when we keep these four priorities in view, then we are doing what God would have us to do in the area of contentment. 
The first obligation is to God. I don't think anybody would argue with me this morning. And His kingdom, right? Matthew chapter 6. Seek ye first, right? The kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. You really can't miss that is priority. It has to be the first issue that we are seeking. Second would be family. 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you do not support your family, you are worse than an infidel, right? You know the passage. And so as believers, we have the responsibility to support our family and to take care of our family, especially as men we do. But, you know, families need to be supported and cared for and have their needs met. That's a biblical concept. Third, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about helping someone in need. If we have resources, we should first of all take care of God. Then we should take care of our family. And then thirdly, we should also help individuals who are in need. Now, you know, for me, you've heard me say this, I think the hard part today is to find out what a legitimate need is. But that does not excuse us from helping those who are in need. And the fourth priority, chapter 6, verse 17. Let's see, you're on the same page here. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, here it is, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. The fourth is we have some pleasures we can enjoy. Now, that's quite a list. God gives to you. You know, He doesn't expect for you to act like a Spartan or a monk. No, He gives us things to enjoy. And so, but the priority is so important. God, family, others, and then our pleasure. But what happens? We start to emphasize, and I'll use the editorial we here, we start to emphasize numbers 2 and 4 at the expense of number 1 and 3. Understand what I mean? We start to get to the point where, well, my family has to have, and then you start listing all the great things that they need in order to have the status that will give them some kind of setting inside the context that they find themselves socially. And then the other part becomes, well, <clears throat> you know, I, I need these things to enjoy my own pleasures, and so therefore I am going to reserve most of what I have for that, and when we do that, we lose our satisfaction and our contentment. Because what happens? In order to find the things that I enjoy, most individuals, and I'm not saying everybody in this room, but most individuals find that they have a card that is so easy now to obtain. It has a little metal strip on the back. It has a little chip on the front. And all you've got to do is stick it in that machine, right? And you can enjoy lots of things. But the problem is you're paying 20% interest on those things that you enjoy. And so as time continues and we have to buy more and more for our family to have them satisfied and pleased, and then we have to do more and more things to make ourselves pleasurable and enjoy the things that we want, 
and we don't have the resources to do that, so therefore we use the credit card in order to do that, and then we become more and more and more in debt. And then the wife has to go to work, leave the children, because we have to pay the bills. Or the second job has to be taken care of because we don't have enough to get along. And all we can do now is just get by, and there's no, there's no longer money for number one, God. There's no longer money for number three, others. Because as Christians even, we get to the point where we bought into this world concept that we've got to have all these toys and all these pleasures so that we can somehow enjoy and experience our lives. When we invert or displace the priorities, we lose contentment. Because we now want these things and our Pleasure starts to become the number one issue, which is a result of what? Selfishness, which goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with the great temptation of Eve. You can be like God. And man has wanted to be God ever since that time. We must keep the order. We must understand that Many of the things that we do, I mean, there's nothing wrong with eating out, but if you eat out every night of the week, it doesn't take, a, it doesn't take it too long to figure out that you're probably spending more than you should. It's going to cost you more to do that. And when that happens and we start to find ourselves in debt, then we lose the ability to find contentment in what God would have us to do and do. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Many times, though, we find it hard to have ourselves content in the things that God gives us. Let me just run by five real practical principles right now that will allow you to have contentment in your heart. Again, they're not on the screen, they're, they're short. First thing, and I think these will, these will always find themselves to be true in your life. You've got to realize, first of all, that God owns everything. Well, that's a great proof. That's a great honor, and that's basically what we're said here with our four. But you have to realize that God owns everything. Everything I have is God's. My health, my strength, my car, it's God. You wouldn't have without God. You wouldn't have health today. You wouldn't have breath today without God. And to think that you would is, a, is the height of arrogance. Secondly, we've got to cultivate a thankful heart. We've got to be thankful what God gives us. We've got to say, thank you, God, because of your goodness to me. And we cultivate that. We work that into our lives. Thirdly, we have to distinguish our needs from our wants. That's a tough one. What are our needs? Food, raiment, and we'll say housing. Many times, though, it moves a lot broader than that, doesn't it? Number five, I'm not sorry, number four, we've got to discipline ourselves to spend less than we make. Boy, that's, the, that's a key area. You've always got to spend less than you make. And then you last of all got to give sacrifice to the Lord. Always got to give the Lord his part, sacrificially, because 
1 Corinthians, he loves a cheerful giver. And that's part of what it means to enjoy him. So God owns it all. Thankful heart, distinguishing our wants from our needs, disciplining personally to spend less than we make and to give sacrificially to the Lord. It says, that's contentment. Secondly, I want you to think with me, and this is very brief. It says that we also have to understand that greed is lost. Verses 9 and 10. And notice, I want you to notice with me that we are now moving into a little different direction by the word but. But let me point something else out to you too. We are now moving into motivation. Before it's more facts, but now it's motivation. Let me give you three examples of motivation. I'll read them for you. It says, but they that will be rich. That's motivation. Fall into the temptation and snare and into many foolish and harmful things which drown men in perdition for the love of money. That's motivation, right? When you love something, that's very much motivation and emotion. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So there's another emotion involved. They coveted after. So they, they wanted to be rich, they love money, and then they covet after it. All those are motivational words. Makes me want something. Makes me want to do something. And the first thing I notice in verse 9 is the trap. And it's a trap. They, they fall into the snare. Rich fall into the temptation and snare into foolish and hurtful things which drown men in destruction and perdition. We find that it's easy for one to fall into this trap, this snare of riches. Everything that we do has some kind of monetary evaluation attached to it. Mercenary would be the word that's used today. Uh, the other word would be a hireling. In John chapter 10, I think it is, it talks about a true shepherd and a hireling. A true shepherd will, will take care of the sheep, but a hireling, whenever there's any kind of problem, he runs the other way because there's not enough money for him. And so it's motivation. And all of us are motivated by certain things. Are you motivated by money? i got to have something for my abilities, for my time. He says here that these individuals are going to be constantly being looked upon this area for motivation. They're going to want to be rich. The temptation here is to be one who is greedy, covet after certain things. Notice the word snare. It's a snare. It, the snare is that it causes us to lose our contentment because we've got to constantly think we have to have more. We've got to constantly think there's something else that's going to give to us that sense of satisfaction that only these things can bring to us. It's a snare that one can have. You know, it's the old Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd deal where they're putting the carrot under the box. As soon as Bugs gets his hand in there, Elmer's going to pull the stick out and catch you. It's a bait. It's a snare for someone. And it can cause many hurtful and foolish lusts, can it? Verse 9, they fall into foolish and hurtful lust which drown men in perdition. How many clothes can you wear at one time? 
I know I get myself in trouble with these things, but how many pairs of shoes can you wear? Now, I know I've got four or five out, but I got them for different purposes, right? But you know, really, you only wear one pair at a time. And so the point is, you know, we can get ourselves caught up in these areas. Think how much it takes to smoke cigarettes or buy alcohol or drugs. Goodness. And these individuals who are being tempted in this snare, they're thrashing around like an animal in a cage. You ever catch an animal in a cage? I, Martin set me up a trap over here, and I caught one of these coons, and I was trying to take care of it. That's, that's an adventure, you know what I mean? trying to get that thing out of there. Somebody told me I should have just taken care of it. I won't tell you what I was supposed to have done inside the cage, but I let it go, and then I took care of it. But man, those things thrash and bite and, and move. And I, if you, some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's sort of the picture that he has here of individuals who are after more and more and more. They're, they're, they're just thrashing all over the place. Got to be careful. It says they have, which drowned in destruction and perdition. That word drowned is a very, very uh, important word. The word drown here is talking about even like the, 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 the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Whenever they're in the boat, they're afraid they're going to drown. Same word is used there that's used here. And what happens here is, you know, they got so many fish on the boat that they just keep more and more with their motivation, wanting more, that they just sink the boat. How many lies do you know that's just wanted more and more and more until it's sunk the life of that person or that family? It says they have drowned themselves in destruction and perdition. Can I give you a couple names? Judas, Achan. One of those names, don't you? Esau. Perdition, destruction. How many families have been destroyed because of excessive greed? the motivation of wanting more and more and more. What about Ananias and Sapphira? So, you find there's a trap, but then there's also a root. And the root's found in verse 10, the love of money, and again, I'm back to this idea of motivation. Love is the motivation, which they have coveted motivation after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I read this week, it's hard to imagine a sin that is not being committed for the love of money. Think about that. It's hard to imagine a sin that has not been committed for the love of money. People indulge themselves. You know how the old phrase goes, they buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like with things that they can't afford. Show off, distort justice, take advantage of the poor, lie, cheat, steal, even murder for the love of money. Again, it's not money. You've been through this. It's not the money. Money is a tool. 
can be used. Any way a tool can be used. It's the motivation of love that's the problem. Some have longed for it, he said, and they've wandered away from the flesh, from the faith, not the flesh, the, flesh, the, the faith. We must always pursue God and not pursue the gifts that God gives to us. Remember Tozier saying that, you know, we have taken God off of the throne of our heart and put His gifts on the throne of our heart. And it's not the gifts that God gives to us that we are to covet. It's God. He's the one that we are to covet with our lives. So, contentment. Isn't it a great word? It's great to be content. Now, in our Christian life, when we are following the Lord and we are seeking His kingdom, we can have that contentment that only He can give to us. But it's something that we have to constantly understand is a growth process that goes on. And when it comes to the material things of life, it says that it's our attitude, it's our motivation that makes the difference in those areas. And when we start loving the things that this world can do for us, that's when we are in problems and difficulties. We've got to consciously realize that God owns it all. Remember I said this earlier? He owns it all. We've got to constantly cultivate that thankful heart. We've got to constantly evaluate our wants and our needs. We've got to constantly discipline ourselves to, to spend less than we make. And we've always got to remember to give God the glory and give Him what He deserves. Because that's the only way that we can be content in this world. Godliness and content. Great words. Words that Paul uses for us. And of course, the greatest contentment is having Christ as your personal Savior. Knowing Him and loving Him. But that is a lifetime now of seeking His kingdom that we are involved with. I trust you are busy seeking the kingdom of God on a daily basis. Father, I do thank you that we're able to have a contentment about us that comes from you.